Dear Patron, We regret that the enclosed photocopies are the best we were able to obtain using our normal reproduction process. This is caused primarily by the age and faded conditions of some of the documents from which these copies were made. September 30th, 1935. Department of Justice, Division of Records, File number 23-70, Subfile 134. Material must not be removed from nor added to this file. Episode 10, Declassified, The State versus Malloy. In this episode, we are going to reveal a declassified federal document from the National Archives of College Park, Maryland. My previous email with Tab Lewis revealed that while he didn't have any records on SLIM, he did have the following declassified document. Headline reads, Malloy held for shooting. Bond of $25,000 fixed for U.S. agent. Logan Malloy... Federal alcohol tax agent, allegedly the man that fired the shot that killed Jesse Harris. Suck Creek Moonshiner was held under $25,000 bond for action by the Marion County Grand Jury in Jasper Tuesday afternoon. Malloy went to Jasper and surrendered to Sheriff Turner Coppinger Tuesday. He was given preliminary hearing before Squire G.E. Alley waived examination and furnished the $25,000 bond pending October session of the grand jury. Malloy pleaded not guilty and did not offer any witnesses. He was accompanied to Jasper by U.S. District Attorney J.B. Fraser Jr. Witnesses for the prosecution at Tuesday's hearing included Mrs. Jesse Harris, widow of the dead man, Coroner R.H. Hall of Marion County, and Joe Lusk of Suck Creek, who claimed to be an eyewitness of the shooting. It was Lusk who originally charged Malloy with killing Harris. The federal officer, said Lusk, shot Harris with a high-powered rifle as the moonshiner attempted to escape a raid last Tuesday by crossing the Tennessee River in a motorboat. A bullet from Malloy's rifle allegedly struck Harris in the leg, severing an artery and toppling him over into the river, where he bled to death. Lusk also declared that Malloy did not cease firing after he had hit Harris, but continued to shoot at another fugitive in the boat. It was only when Agent J.D. Jones, in charge of the raid, ordered Malloy to stop firing that he did so, Lusk said. To his previous statement, Lusk added the testimony that Malloy, when he commanded the two men to halt, did not tell them that he was an officer of the law. Mrs. Harris and the coroner testified only to establish the fact of Harris's death. Both Malloy and his superiors have maintained strict silence about the incident. Article from the Chattanooga New, August 14, 1935. My suspect or person of interest, James Logan Malloy, is apparently no stranger to using excessive force in his moonshine raids. This episode's guest, Daniel Barnes, is a criminal lawyer in the same county that Slim worked and died in. I've known Daniel my entire life. We went to kindergarten together. He was the first person I thought of when scouring over the court documents concerning Malloy. 
I knew that he would be able to see something I might have missed. But before we jump into this federal declassified document, Daniel offers a fun comparison of what those moonshining penalties would look like in today's world. This is just more of a fun fact. Uh, the potential penalties for operating a still today in Tennessee, it is a Class B misdemeanor, which means it's at a lower level than some pretty minor offenses. It only carries a possibility of punishment of up to six months and a fine of, I think, I don't even remember what the what the maximum fine is, but it's a very low-level offense. It only goes down to C misdemeanors. A C misdemeanor is the lowest level of crime that exists, and it's one level above that. U.S. District Court at Chattanooga, Tennessee, December 10th, 1935. The petition of Logan Malloy, the defendant in the above-named case, who would respectfully show unto the honorable court that on or about the 13th day of August 1935, the above entitled suit was commenced in the Circuit Court for Marion County, Tennessee, against your petitioner asking judgment in the sum of $25,000 for the alleged wrongful, unlawful, willful, and malicious shooting and killing of the husband of the plaintiff. Prior to the commencement of the said suit, and at all times hereinafter mentioned, your petitioner was, and now is, a duly appointed investigator of the alcohol tax unit of the Treasury Department to the Internal Revenue with authority to act in and for the state of Tennessee and Eastern District thereof. Daniel notes his initial reactions towards the document. Well, uh, procedurally, uh, it was pretty standard. Um, now, of course, looking at anything from 1935, law is completely different by now, and just as a Word of warning, I don't know necessarily what the law would have been at the time. The criminal code has been overhauled multiple times. But one thing that was interesting is some conclusionary legal terms that I noticed in a lot of the paperwork talking about him acting in the course of his duty. And from what I can conclude, just based on the fact that they bring this up in his defense so many times, that if he were... Uh, I guess, quote, acting in the course of his duty as an agent, a federal agent, he would not be, I guess, guilty of murder. And that seems to be at least what is being implied in the documents here. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a familiar term for like employment law and civil torts, but it doesn't have, as far as I'm aware, a place in criminal law anymore. So that was somewhat interesting. Apparently, there was some motivation to bring both cases to the federal level. Right. He seemed to, or his attorneys seemed to think that he would do better in federal court. Um, I'm guessing that's why they had applied the habeas corpus. I mean, obviously, given recent events, it's kind of insane just to see how quickly that a murder charge actually resulted in this at the local level. You know, he actually did a preliminary hearing and was uh, bound over, which means that a judge had to hear the facts in this case at the general sessions level, find probable cause, and then send it to the grand jury, who apparently then indicted him. So he actually was, they found probable cause via two different methods uh, to begin his criminal case before it was apparently removed to federal court. Apparently there was enough evidence stacking up 
against Malloy, at least in the beginning. No, I think that's pretty spot on. Um, He was so clearly motivated to get to federal court. He clearly thought he was going to do better in federal court. Whether that applied to just one side, because there was the civil suit and the criminal suit, I don't know. But he clearly wanted both removed to federal court. What kinds of cases are handled in federal court? Federal court jurisdiction is limited to certain types of cases listed in the U.S. Constitution. For the most part, federal court jurisdictions only hear cases in which the United States is a party. Cases involving violations of the Constitution or federal law, crimes on federal land, and bankruptcy cases. Federal courts also hear cases based on state law that involve parties from different states. While federal courts handle fewer cases than most state courts, the cases heard tend to be of great importance and of great interest to the press and the public. Provided by uscourts.gov. Right. And and, and there were several witness statements that I simply couldn't make out. Um, Several in the beginning that seemed to be taken by investigators um, with the Treasury Department uh, were the ones that were the most difficult to read out. But the uh, the ones from the people that were, I think, more directly involved, Alton and uh, Joe Lusk, especially, were pretty easy to read, actually. And the thing that surprised me the most was that there's this killing and most of the witness statements are pretty consistent. Um, There's some slight variations about time and uh, distances, but they're pretty narrow. Everyone seems to agree that the three shots that were fired, well, that there were three shots that were fired, which right away is kind of peculiar that everyone agrees that it was three shots and that they took place in about a one to a little less than one minute uh, rest period between each one. Um, If it were me and I were on a jury, just looking at these facts, if I were the finder of fact on this, I definitely see some things that are suspicious to me. And, And this is more just as a colloquial person, as a legal, well, I wouldn't say expert, but as someone who works in the legal field, there's not anything there that's like, oh, this is clearly legally the definition. It's more about applying the facts. And there are some holes in what seems logical. The the thing that was strangest to me was the fact that he had his femoral artery severed by the gunshot, but almost every witness statement seems to have him in the water for some period of time swimming and not immediately struggling. And I, I'm not a medical expert by any means, but I would imagine if your femoral artery is severed, you would bleed out very quickly. That, that was what stuck out to me the most. And I don't know what to make out of it because everyone seems to be pretty much in agreement with what the facts are. Here's an article that verifies Daniel's concerns about the gunshot wound to the femoral artery. The body has two femoral arteries that branch off from about mid-abdomen into each thigh. They are among the body's biggest vessels, and in the groin area and upper thigh are about as big around as an index finger. Stopping blood loss gushing from a bullet hole in that region can be extremely challenging, even if the wound is close to that groin. 
It would be hard to put a tourniquet around it, said Dr. Gannon, an emergency medicine specialist at the University of Illinois Medical Center in Chicago. An injury of this type essentially means you can lose all the blood in your whole body within five minutes, said Dr. Mary Pat McKay, director of George Washington University's Center for Injury Prevention and Control. Article from ESPN.com. I think the thing that struck me as the most peculiar about the gunshot wound itself was that um, I could be misremembering, but it sounded like they were saying that the gunshots were fired after uh, Jess Harris was in the water. And if he's in the water when he was hit, it seems very difficult to believe that short of some very high-powered rifles, any bullet could go that far into the water and maintain enough momentum to get him in the leg. And I don't know enough about guns to maybe know that. I mean, I shoot guns, but I haven't measured their velocity underwater. That seems like an awfully long way for a bullet to go underwater to hit someone. And I wonder if he was shot while he was still in the boat. Apparently, all supersonic bullets disintegrate in less than three feet of water, but slower velocity bullets, like pistol rounds, need up to eight feet of water to slow non-lethal speeds. Next, Daniel gets into the two statements concerning the autopsy report. Two statements about that. One was the coroner, and another was an undertaker. And if I recall correctly, the coroner essentially said it could have been either or, and that he didn't check his lungs for water. I'm guessing... They just didn't do a complete autopsy, is what I gathered from it. And that may have just been where it stopped. Like, we're just not going to do the full-fledged autopsy to determine what he died from. He could have drowned. He could have bled out. My inclination would be to assume that he drowned because I just can't imagine someone being able to stay above the water very long with that serious of a wound. I've read and reread this document, at least what I can make of some of the illegible parts. The investigators interviewed the coroner's assistant who said that he would testify to finding water in the lungs consistent with drowning. But the coroner also stated that the lungs were not checked for water. They weren't even checked at all, at least according to the coroner. Of course, the logical conclusion after hearing the ESPN article would be that drowning would have only been an accessory to the femoral artery being severed although the artery that was struck meant he could have potentially bled out within minutes since he fell in the water. He would have also had time to drown. One thing that I can gather from this is that they would have witnessed Jesse Harris die within minutes either by drowning or by loss of blood. This nullifies all statements given by investigators who said both men got away. I go on to mention the mysterious call that was received the night of the incident. About 10 p.m. on August 6th, I received a telephone call from some party. I asked him his name, and he said Hobart, or Homer, but would tell no more. He stated over the phone that they had been dragging the river for some person that was drowned near the point where he had destroyed the distillery. I asked him, who they were dragging for, but he refused to tell me and hung up the receiver. Excerpt from J.D. Jones, Investigator. Yes, um, and I think one reason you might have missed this, I was trying to look into that myself. 
I think that person gave a statement. I think it's one of the ones that's very difficult to read in the 20s range, but I believe there's someone there who talks about having dragged the river and gives an official statement. So I think that's what it is, but those are so hard to read that I could just be misinterpreting that. I did see that that was how they discovered the body. I can't make much more out of it than that, but I seem to remember somewhere in the 20s and 30s where the stuff is really poorly printed that someone had a statement where they mentioned something about that. Here's the Cliff Notes version. Malloy stated he fired a shot aiming for the motor of the boat. Afterwards, he fired two more shots within a couple of minutes. One of those three shots struck Jesse Harris in the femoral artery. According to Luss, the first shot struck him because Jesse screamed out. Malloy and his posse of investigators had to witness Jesse's death either by blood loss or drowning. Some of this just doesn't add up. That, that's, that's pretty much everything that I see as a lawyer, at least. A lot of the stuff that I, that I have looked through that just seems inconsistent. I mean, maybe I have some more expertise on these kinds of things, having read hundreds of police reports. But there's nothing in my training as a lawyer that makes anything stick out in particular. Um, there was one other thing I thought that was very strange was about, and I forget where I saw this, but someone had said in the lead up to the raid that they expected there to be a boat or two tied at the river and expressed that they wanted to try to cut off their escape and maybe someone should prevent that. But it seems that no one did. Um, there were no steps apparently taken from anything I could see, at least, where someone tried to cut them off. You know, they they just kind of seemed to stumble across it and then chase them down when they got into the boat. And 40 yards or 40 or 50 yards away, just start shooting at the boat, which is another peculiar thing if you're really trying to prevent escape. I don't see how shooting a motor seems to be the most efficient way to do that. But especially if one person is paddling with their hands, they can't be really getting away that effectively. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess just the idea of paddling with your hands if you're in a motorboat seems kind of peculiar. It seems very peculiar. Some of the statements from Malloy and other officers just don't make sense concerning the paddling via use of the hands, especially when you have a motorboat. When statements don't add up, someone has to be straying from the truth. No, I, I mean, well, I'm probably not the person to stop you from overstepping bounds on that subject, but no, it seems to me like he decided he didn't want to be inconvenienced by a chase and started shooting. And take note of what Daniel says next. And just being involved in multiple shootings in that field is just inherently suspicious by itself. According to the Tennessean, this wasn't the only time he fired his gun. Uh, but I will tell you a couple of things that you could maybe, uh, you've probably already tried this, but one things that might clarify a little bit more about what happened with this case is if you could find the uh, actual just court records about the lawsuit that was brought, because there's both a criminal case and a civil case. One thing that would be very interesting to see, and it would be kind of telling how strong he thought the case against him was at the time, is 
whether there were any responsive pleadings done to the civil suit before they tried to remove it to a circuit or to a federal court. Because typically the first thing you do in any civil suit, if you have a half decent defense, is you file a motion for summary judgment or a motion, a 12B6 motion to dismiss a claim. Um, it's pretty standard. And especially if he thought he had a colorable defense to the civil suit, I would expect something like that to have been filed to try to get rid of it before they even tried to bring it to the federal level as a removal proceeding. Um, whether that happened, because I don't know if this is the entirety of the record that's still around or not, something from this far back could be hard to track down. Um, they may just not have it. But if he didn't file that, then he seems to have believed that he was in some hot water on that case, especially since, you know, and this is what makes me think the most suspiciously of him is just the fact that two people kept this case around. It's hard for me to imagine a Marion County grand jury indicting someone without some really strong evidence today. So, I mean, especially, you know, an agent who was in the course of trying to arrest some people for operating a still and shoot someone dead, there had have been something that was pretty convincing to that little jury that he had committed a murder and not simply not aimed correctly. Here's an excerpt that concerned me. Not personally being involved in court cases or any background whatsoever, something just didn't seem right. These petitions were filed in their present limited form because we were advised at the time that the attorney general of that district would not resist the removal of these cases to the federal court and would not file a motion seeking to remand the cases to the state court. In view of this, we did not deem it necessary to disclose the prosecution all the facts in our possession and thereby make available the grounds of defense which we expect to present. Should a motion to remand these cases to the state court be made, we will amend our petitions in compliance with your suggestion. To the Attorney General, Washington, D.C., to a degree, yes. And there's always gray area. That's a pro what they're probably referring to is a, um, a process called discovery. Um, that's usually the first step in a criminal proceeding when it's at the trial court level. Um, it's where the defense attorney would petition the state to turn over all relevant evidence uh, to the case. Now, there are a few things that are protected. Um, and of course, everything that I'm aware of now is going to be case law that's newer than this case. But a good example would be if there's an undercover drug buy case, the uh, identity of an informant is not turned over unless the case is going to go to trial. Um, that's one thing that is generally protected because, you know, they don't to just immediately turn out the names of their uh, CIs. Um, there are other things that can be protected, things that are uh, not discoverable. And a lot of the times you'll have fights about that kind of thing. It's very common for um, whether it's the district attorney's office doing it themselves or the police not turning things over. There are a lot of the times discovery fights about whether things are turned over or not. Um, it's fairly common. To bring the conversation to a close, I petitioned Daniel with my concerns in light of recent events within law enforcement. 
There are a lot of reasons, in my opinion. Um, the biggest being that the that there's no separation between the people that enforce those laws and the ones in that situation that should be prosecuted. For instance, um, a good, a great example to talk about the procedural problems is the Michael Brown shooting in in uh, Ferguson, Missouri. Um, you know that that was taken to the grand jury and it was reported as, oh, this is, you know, they actually took this officer to the grand jury when he, you know, shot an unarmed 18-year-old. Um, the problem was grand jury proceedings are never open to the defense. I've never been to a grand jury proceeding and I've handled hundreds of criminal cases. I'm not allowed in. The only people that go to grand jury proceedings are people called by the prosecution. They get to call witnesses. There's no witnesses they have to call. So they get to pick and choose who they call, what questions they ask. No one gets to introduce another point of view. There, there's a saying that a competent prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich for murder because no one gets to say anything else. And yet in that case, the officer that did the shooting was allowed to come into the grand jury proceeding and speak in his own defense. That is something I have never heard of happening at any level, anywhere, even by attorneys that have been practicing, you know, 30, 40 years. No one has seen something like that because it doesn't happen. But the prosecutors made that made that happen because they didn't want to dismiss the case outright and have people mad at them. They wanted to be able to say, oh, a grand jury didn't indict. And the reason things like that happen are, you know, the prosecutors that were prosecuting that case are the prosecutors that work with the police department in every other case. And they really just don't want to mess with people that they work with. And since, you know, the entirety of the executive branch on enforcement works together on that level, there's no separate system that doesn't work with them, that doesn't have biases for them to try to protect them. And I think that's the biggest single reason. There's a plethora of other reasons. That I could get into, but that's probably the biggest. I've seen the federal government flaunt its leathery tentacles across this country time and time again. I've seen it firsthand. The Civil Rights Act of 1871 was meant to give citizens protection from federal employees using excessive force. Unfortunately, in this case, Jesse Harris was not served justice. The federal government protected their own. It's no different then, and it's not any different now. I want to leave you with this excerpt from the document that left my jaw on the floor. Justice was not served in 1935. Malloy got away with murder then, so couldn't he also have gotten away with it again in 1937? Pay close attention to the last sentence. In compliance with your request to remove the above civil case, which was filed by the widow of Jesse Harris against Inspector Malloy and is pending in the Circuit Court of Marion County, Tennessee, you are hereby authorized to take the proper steps to remove this suit from said court to the United States District Court for trial and do whatever is necessary to protect the interests of Inspector Malloy and the government in the matter. Sincerely, Joseph B. Keenan, Assistant Attorney General. 
and do whatever is necessary to protect the interests of Inspector Malloy and the government in the matter. And do whatever is necessary to protect the interest of Inspector Malloy and the government in the matter. Don't go just yet. I want you to check out this cool podcast that I've been listening to. Welcome to Ivy League Murders. Ah, the Ivy League. They are the eight most prestigious colleges in the nation. And as we've seen recently, people will do or pay anything to get their kids into them. When you hear Ivy League, what comes to mind? Is it the hallowed halls of education and tradition? Professors in tweed coats pontificating about Walt Whitman? Elitism? Finals clubs? What you probably don't think of is murder. On this podcast, we focus on cases affiliated with the Ivy League, exploring the darker side of higher education. What happens when genius becomes evil? We deep dive into the stories behind the picture-perfect Ivy Leaguers who appear to have everything and throw it all away. And for what? Love? Money? Obsession? My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate, and I've been a private investigator since 1999. Join me and longtime crime diva, Laura McDonald, for Ivy League Murders. <laughs>